Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. You don't get to draw uh, assumptions from a distance. Let me tell you what it means to follow me. And I think whenever someone is giving it to us straight from, from the source, we've got to pay attention to that. You can waste a lot of years living what you think is a Christian life and find it midway or at the end that what you were doing had very little to do with what Jesus described as following him. So this morning, the the passage we're going to look at comes out of Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21, and then we're going to skip a little bit into 32 to 34. It's a parable which has come to be known as the parable of the rich fool. Now, let me set the table a little bit. In chapters 11 and 12 of Luke, Jesus has been preaching a really heavy, intense sermon. It's, and it says in, in Luke 12, verse 1, that there were such huge crowds drawn that day to listen to him that they were trampling each other. So if you get the picture, the crowd is so large, the space is so limited, people are literally standing on top, like they're, they're stepping on each other's toes. The word trampling is actually kind of disturbing, but it's, it, it's an idea that it's packed. And yet, if you read the sermon Jesus has been preaching, it is so heavy and so intense, you can imagine that as he wraps up, there's this very heavy silence hanging over the whole crowd because people are, you know, it's one of those sermons where you're not laughing at the jokes, you're just kind of going, whoa. And they're processing, they're chewing, they're weighing what he has just said. And in that silence... This guy in the crowd shouts out, out of the blue. He says, hey, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. I mean, that's awkward. It's a really intense spiritual sermon. Everyone's kind of thinking about what Jesus said. This guy goes, hey, you, tell my brother, my stupid, worthless brother, to share my dead daddy's money with me. You know those moments where someone has so embarrassed themselves and it's so awkward, your skin is crawling like, oh. This guy is a perfect illustration of the distinction Jesus is drawing between those who know him and those who don't. There are some who understand that life is about heavier things than what I'll eat, what I'll wear. And there are others who can sit through that whole sermon and go, what? All I really care about is I want some of my dead daddy's money. My stupid brother won't give it to me. And he's not even asking Jesus to judge between them. He's saying, take my side and make this fool give me what I deserve. Now, we don't know the details of the story. We don't know who was cheating who. Because Jewish law required, uh, provided that the firstborn son would always get a double portion. Firstborn sons, where are you? Good to be a firstborn son sometimes. Rarely, but sometimes. And, you know, so the firstborn son would get a double portion of the inheritance. And so we don't know if the firstborn son is making an end run for, for all of it and making a power grab and trying to take his younger brother's share, or if the younger brother can't accept the unfairness of getting half of what his brother gets. And he's saying, make him split it 50-50 with me. We don't know exactly the situation. Here's what we do know. Their dad has just died, and all they can think about is the money he left behind. And two brothers who should be mourning their father's passing are about to go at each other 
over money and how it's divided. In other words, what we can say for certain about this man and this family was that the desire to have money was tearing the family apart. And so even though it's a very awkward and unwarranted interruption, Jesus seizes upon that interruption to tell a story because he wants to to honor the, the guy's actual question, but to also teach the crowds who have gathered, let me tell you something now that you, you need to understand about this kingdom of mine. And he tells them a story that is um, now called the parable of the rich fool, and it centers around this one simple idea. Always be on your guard against all forms of greed because your true life is not found in having an abundance of possessions. Now, in a lot of places I've preached around the world, I don't really have to harp on that part. They don't have anything, so they're like not struggling with that. But in this country, in this place, this is a real issue for us. Is that even though we don't want to be characterized as the kind of people who think, my life is found in an abundance of possessions, if you watch the way that we live and talk and worry and dream and plan, the honest truth is, we really do think that life is going to be found in having an abundance of possessions. And so Jesus is giving this story, this parable, to teach us a lesson about the economics of the kingdom of God. So let's talk about, first, the economics of greed. Okay, The economics of greed. Because really what he's saying is, greed perfectly characterizes the economy of the world apart from God. That when you take God out of the picture, the most natural way to relate to money and material resources is to be greedy. Would you agree with that? That if you take God out of the picture, greed is the most natural way to relate to to things that you earn and have. And so he launches a story by telling the story of a farmer. And in, in the beginning of the story, you find this farmer has had a bumper crop that year. And if you're in an agrarian society, a large and abundant harvest equals lots of money in your pocket. And so it's, it starts with the story of a guy who's having a very good year, and he has an unexpected windfall. Now, so far in the story, we can cast no judgment on this man because he's not a drug dealer. He didn't steal from the poor. He just happened to have a good crop. He got his money honestly and you know, you know, so far, really, as, especially as a farmer, if you think about it, in no other industry are you as dependent on the good mercies of God for your, your wealth and your welfare. And so this farmer has a good, he can't control the sun and the air and the weather, but he has an awesome harvest. And now he's asking the question most of us would ask. See, I think most of us, we don't have very much money in our own minds anyway, in our way of thinking. So the money that does trickle in, we have it earmarked for exact things. We have a very well laid out plan for the money we can expect to earn. But when unexpected money enters our lives, most of us are caught off guard. And we would ask the exact same question this guy's asking. Hey, what shall I do with this? Have you ever gotten a larger than expected tax refund and you, you, you say to yourself, Dude, I wasn't counting on that. I mean, the first year that we did our taxes a little differently, and I was a full-time pastor, and I got the housing allowance, and I got a refund, and I almost choked on the amount of my refund. I realized I may be withholding too much, but what are we going to do with this? And can I just make a confession to you? 
even though I'm a man of the cloth, I wasn't first thinking about all the people I was going to help. I'm thinking, oh, dude, I can finally get my barbecue grill and we can go on vacation. <laughs> me, 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 me. And, and that's exactly what was rolling through my head. I don't say that with pride. I just, I'm being honest with you. When I had some unexpected money come my way, I asked the same question this guy's asking. What are we going to do with it? And it's in how we answer that question that something very important about the state of our hearts is revealed. And so I want to just spell out a few observations about the economics of greed or the way that money works in a world apart from God. The first observation is that greed does not acknowledge God. Let me unpack that a little bit. The first thing you'll notice as the story continues is, here's what it says. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, by the way, I'm exaggerating for effect. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. This guy does a lot of talking to himself. Okay? And what you'll notice is in these three short verses, there are ten occurrences of the first person pronoun. And the idea you get is in all of this deliberation about what to do with this unexpected wealth that has come his way, there is a, a, the sense that he's thinks of this money as belonging entirely to himself and that he's only responsible for himself and to himself for what he does with it. Now, that's not, you know, in, in this church setting, we're like, ooh, that's yucky. Why is it? But let's be honest. Out there, when you leave this building and you're out there in the real world, that's how all of us feel about our money. It's my money. I mean, I went to work every day. I punched the clock. I earned it. I studied. This is my money, isn't it? So what is wrong with thinking about what I will do with my money? Well, on one level, really there isn't anything wrong with that. That's very logical. But it's only logical if you look at life as though God doesn't exist. God is this very inconvenient and very large presence in the life of a Christian. And if you are a follower of Christ, you cannot think about any subject in life as though God were not in the picture. At the heart of it, that's one of the most central and basic things about being a Christian, is that in every facet of life, my career, my leisure and entertainment choices, my sex life, my love life, in every one of those facets of life, to be a Christian means that God is front and center, one of the most primary presences in the way that I think about how I'm going to handle this part of my life. And if he is not, then the honest truth is you are a Christian in name, but in practice you are indistinguishable from everybody outside of the kingdom. Because that's how everybody in their natural state will think about their lives. You know, Psalm 14.1 says, The fool says, and I love this, in his heart. Too scared to say it out loud, you know, in case he gets zapped by it. So he says, in his heart, there is no God. So the fool says in his heart, this is nonsense. I don't see God. He doesn't see me. I'm going to live as though God doesn't exist. 
And that's fine for the person who doesn't know God. That is the most natural and sane way for a non-Christian to live. But if you're listening to me this morning and you are a Christ follower, you don't get to say there is no God. You don't get to approach life as though God isn't part of the equation. It's clear that this farmer in the story did not consider God in the deliberation, and he did not consider God to be the source of this unexpected newfound wealth. Now, before we condemn him for his unacknowledgement of God, let's explore our own hearts for a moment, and I will include myself in that exploration. How do you handle each paycheck? When you get that check, and probably most of us don't even get a check anymore, even uh, a traditional old-fashioned organization like the church, we do electronic wire transfers, right in my account. One day my, my smartphone bings, and then, oh, look, I have money this month. And so that's how it works. And when I get that money, what is your thought process? See, I think... Most people will just go, oh, look, my hard-earned cash. I know exactly where that's going. And to some degree, you know, I think that's normal. But I want to give you a different picture of how we ought to greet each paycheck that we have. I think it's a good idea to pause and just thank God that we have the ability to meet our needs. Because I have traveled enough now to have seen and met and held hands with people for whom that really just isn't such an easy assumption to make. And when you've been with somebody who honestly cannot speak to where their next meal is coming from, you begin to understand how much we really take for granted. How, in a sense, offensive the presumptions of American wealth really is. And uh, so I think we ought to pause to thank God. And I think we ought to, every once in a while when we get that paycheck, pause to ask God, are you okay with my standard of living? See, most of us set our standard of living based on the size of our paycheck, and we don't pause and ask God, are you okay with the choices I'm making? This way that we're living, are you pleased with it? I don't think guilt is the first thing we're looking to find here. I'm just simply asking, if God is important, if he's valued to us, I think it makes sense to pause and say, God, are you pleased with the choices we've made in our lifestyle, in our standard of living? Another related question is, are you pleased with our definition, with my definition of what enough is? Enough is one of the most powerful words in the English language. Because philosophically enough, that word and how you define it, is really one of the driving engines of the way you approach your life. Have you ever paused and asked God, are you pleased with my definition of the word enough? Paul, writing to his spiritual son Timothy, says in 1 Timothy 6.10, a very familiar phrase, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And I'll join thousands of pastors before me in pointing out, Money is not the root of all evil, but it's the love of money that is the root of all evil. What he's saying is you can and should value money. You should respect its potential and its power. But as a follower of Jesus Christ, we must never, ever love money. You can have great quantities of it. You can pursue it. You can value it. But as a Christian, the one thing you must be on your guard against is that you must never 
love money. Because when you do, you fall away from your faith. You wander and you fall into all kinds of grief. Think about how many Hollywood motion pictures are driven in their plots by the desire for money and all the junk that happens afterwards. And that's At the heart of, of almost half the movies you watch is money and its desire. It's love of mo- a person's love of money. Now listen to what Jesus teaches us. He says, no one can serve two masters. And listen to the language he uses. Okay, it's very interesting language in talking about money. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. He's using love language to say that when it comes to our relationship with money, the love of God and the love of money are mutually exclusive. That needs to be said a thousand times in American churches. I cannot, with integrity, provide a second option for us. The love of money and the love of God are mutually exclusive. If you don't know what that phrase means, let me break it down for you this way. If you love God, you cannot love money. And if you love money, you cannot love God. I mean, I could go all day with just that text right there. I'm just drawing it as an illustration to say, really, in the end, our relationship to money is about what and whom we love. And you cannot love money and at the same time claim to love God. That's like saying, honey, I love you and my other wife. Really, I love both of you. Which one of your wives would be okay with that? And they will both say to you, that's a lie because it's just not possible. By definition, you can only really love one of us. And in the end, what's clear is you don't love either of us. You just love you. Here's what... Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, how do you know whether you love money or not? He says, whoever loves money never has enough. And whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. So before we condemn the farmer in Jesus' story who loves his money and doesn't even acknowledge God, let me ask you, have you ever just felt like it's never enough? Now, some of you, really, you're struggling, so it isn't actually enough mathematically. It doesn't add up. You can excuse yourself from the room for like 30 seconds. I'm not trying to punish you for being poor. I'm talking about those of us who know that enough has been reached already. Somewhere way back, enough has already been met and kicked in the butt. And now you're saying, do you ever feel like there's a point in your life where you go, yeah, but still, I need more. And it's not that you need more. It's that something in your heart tells you, what I have isn't, what? Enough. See, this is how we know we love anything, is I can never have enough of it. I know I love my wife because I have never gotten sick of her in 20 years. I've never thought, oh gosh, I need a break from this genie girl. I can't wait to come home from work because I like being with my wife. Is that weird? My kids think I'm weird because I'm so happy to see my wife every day. But that's how you know you love something or someone is that you don't get sick of it. It's never enough. The more you have, the more you want. That's how we know we love God. Is that the more I have of Him, the more I want of Him. And And here's another way of saying it. To love God is to be greedy for God. 
to be ambitious for more, to never grow weary of more and more of Him. Let me give you another observation about the economics of greed that we learn from this farmer's story is that greed hoards its surplus. Here's what he says. This farmer, he says, I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. What is the definition of surplus? It is having more than what I need. You don't call it surplus if it's within budget and meets the exact needs you have. Surplus is after everything's been cared for and all the creditors have been paid, this is going out money. This is night out on the town with the girls' money. This is buying a, a jet ski money. Do you know what I'm saying? That's what surplus is. It's the money we talk about, the wealth, the time, the resources, that is an excess of what we need to be alive. And most of us in this room, whether we feel it or not, have a surplus that we are called to manage in some way that reflects the glory of God. This farmer decides, I've got all these extra crops, what shall I do? And the answer he comes up with is, I know, I'll keep it all, and I'm going to tear down the barns I have. By the way, just for him to be a first century farmer and have a barn makes him among the elite, wealthiest landowners of the time. So he's already rich, he just got richer. Ain't that the way it is? Rich just keep getting richer. And this guy says, I will tear down the barns I already have, and I will... I will build bigger ones. He doesn't share his wealth with his laborers. He doesn't seek the welfare of the community. He doesn't meet the needs of the poor around him. His solution with the surplus is, I know I will save it in case there's stuff I don't need or want yet, but I'm going to want it later so that I can take it easy for a while. He stores away what he can't use. I don't know if you're like me, but Driving around America lately, I've noticed that these things are popping up everywhere. Have you seen a lot of these places? It's a self, if you're listening on, on, on the podcast, it's a self-storage facility. And let me tell you something about this crazy industry. The self-storage industry is exploding, and it seems to be one of the recession-proof industries in the United States. There are 48,000 500 self-storage facilities in America. That's why you see one on every stinking block, right? You're like, where are... And have you ever driven by and going, what, what is in those things? How could so many people need so many extra places to put so much of their extra stuff? To give you a frame of reference, there are 48,500 of these places in the U.S. Guess how many McDonald's restaurants there are globally? There are only 38,000 McDonald's all over the whole world. So we're talking about like 10,000 more storage facilities in the U.S. than there are McDonald's in the whole... And how many McDonald's are there? There's one every other block, isn't there? There's enough under-the-roof, enclosed, self-storage facility space in America to equal 2.4 billion square feet. Do you know what that is? That is three times the size of Manhattan. And this is a $24 billion a year industry. And it's estimated that one out of every 10 American households uses a storage facility to store their excess stuff. One industry blogger that I read about this past week, in, in trying to explain why there's such huge growth in this industry in the last 10 years, here's what he wrote. People keep acquiring possessions. They keep buying more and more things without getting rid of some of their other possessions. 
Their basement, garages, and attics are stuffed to overflowing, and people find that they still need more space. That need translates into renting a storage unit. We Americans are doing exactly what this farmer did. We have so much stuff, we don't know what to do with it, and so we pay money to rent other space and put all our stuff in them. And when you do that, and this is the thing I always think about when I'm driving past these places, when you pay pay money to store this stuff away, it's not just stored away, it's actually out of commission. It's out of circulation. It's useless to you and to everybody else. Here's another way of saying it. Storage is prison for material resources. Storage is jail for stuff that could be useful. How much stuff do we have that is of no earthly use to anyone? Have you ever walked around your basement and go, oh, we have one of those? And you realize the whole time you've owned it and not even realized it, it has been sitting physically in your home and has been of no earthly use to anyone on earth. And we love that feeling. Yeah, boy, I got a tennis racket stringer. I never use it, but I got one. Do you have one? And we don't understand as Americans how deeply offensive that kind of excess really is. Now, if it was just this world we live in, in a bubble, maybe that would be no problem, but that's not the world we live in. And that's why this last observation about greed really is so disturbing, so indicting, is that greed seeks only its own welfare. This farmer says, I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Not everyone can say that in my town, but I can say it for myself. I've got plenty, so here's my solution. Why don't I just live off of that, take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, don't get me wrong. Nobody enjoys a good time more than me, right? You guys ever hang out with me, you'll understand. I don't have anything against eating and drinking and being merry and enjoying a little rest and relaxation. But the the reason that this is problematic is because he has more than he could possibly use and the motivation for storing it away is because he believes that out of the security that his excess affords him, he is now free to pursue a life of self-centered leisure and ease. Ambition of greed is to have more and do less. This is the ultimate win in the United States of America, is to get money that works for you so that, in fact, dude, I have a company and we make this junk and it just I get a check every month. I don't even have to show up anymore. My staff does everything. And this is, everyone goes, dude, how did you do that? Because I want to do that. The ultimate win in America is to get lots of money and do almost no work. And everyone goes, that is the secret of life. That's what we're after. What we don't realize is, and let me just make an aside here, because I don't know when I'm going to get to talk about this subject again. This really is an indictment against the American concept of retirement, isn't it? Because think about what the entirety of our careers are leading towards is if I work really hard and save enough stuff, one day when I reach a certain age, I can stop working at all and just relax, golf, play bingo, hang out with my friends, eat good food and get a senior's discount 
and then just, and basically retirement in America, the Western concept of retirement is death's waiting room. It's to suddenly forfeit any sense of being, a reason for being on earth and just enjoy myself. And what you don't realize is most people in retirement hate it. They say, why did I retire? I don't feel like anyone. I used to have a reason for living. I used to get up in the morning, but all of a sudden, I'm on an unending permanent summer vacation, and I don't even feel like waking up, because if I wake up early or late, who cares? See, work is not a punishment. It's not a necessary evil. It is one of the greatest gifts and dignities God has bestowed upon human beings. That we can be like Him and have a reason to live. And if the goal of your entire working career is to one day stop doing anything and just take it easy, that is exactly against the way that God has made us. Now, I will admit, and I'm, I'm getting close to that place where I'm feeling my age and I need to slow down a little bit. I can't act like I'm 20 anymore. When I play sports, I still think I'm 20 and I pay a high price for that foolishness. When you get older, you do have to slow down. And you probably can't contribute your wealth and your strength as much as when you were young. But that doesn't mean we just stop altogether and only think about ourselves. Selfishness is never a good thing. That phrase, eat, drink, and be merry, appears several times in Scripture, and it is never a positive phrase. It is always condemned as typifying everything that is ugly about a humanity apart from God. Take life easy, to eat, drink, and be merry as a goal of life is so much less than what God has set aside for us. So in your later years, don't set a goal of retiring. Set a goal of changing what you contribute to the world. When you're older, what you do have more of than when you were younger is experience and wisdom. And God knows that the younger generation in this country needs more of that from us. So when you can't give your strength and you can't give your wealth, give away your wisdom and experience. But don't set a goal of taking care of myself and doing no work. That never, ever pleases God. And so we see that this farmer is held up as, and he's called a rich fool. Not every rich person is a fool, but many are because wealth corrupts the heart. It clouds judgment. And the reason this rich man is called a fool is because he labored under the economics of greed. He didn't acknowledge God. He hoarded everything he didn't need for today, withheld it from himself and his fellow man. And he thought only of what he needs, had no regard for what others need. So let me just end this message by making a couple quick points about a better economy, what Jesus is really trying to say. This is how we all relate to money. But here's a better way. the, The first thing I want to just say is invest your wealth while you can. Look what he says in the story. God says to this farmer, You fool! You're going to store up all this. You've got big plans to build bigger barns. But this very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? The irony of hoarding our wealth is that it's not just withheld from others. It's withheld from us. Nobody's using it. 
And the man who dies with hoarded wealth is a fool because money that's hidden away is of no good to anyone. It's useless dead money. It's riches that have no value because it's hidden away in a barn and no one can benefit from it. Now you have to be very clear on this. God did not kill this farmer as a punishment for his greed. So if you're rich and you're greedy, don't be like looking for death. Don't be expecting death sentence. It's not the point. God's not punishing him so much as he's making a point. That wealth often leads to an arrogant presumption of a long future. We make big plans for ourselves, believing that our wealth insulates us from everything. But Jesus, later in this passage, says, you cannot, by worrying, add even a single hour to your life. You will live exactly as long as God wants you to live, and not a second more, not a second less. Your days are already numbered, and God knows the number of your days. So he's showing the futility, the foolishness, of presuming a long life and missing out on the opportunity that while I am here on this planet, that's the only window of opportunity we have to do anything that's lasting. When you hoard your wealth and you die with money in the bank, you have missed out on one of the greatest opportunities and joys of human life, which is that while you are able, you did something with what God gave you. I love Jonathan Edwards. By the way, look, look at this. Do you guys know this show? This cracks me up. Not only are we spending tons of money storing our excess junk, some people have so much junk, they just die and forget that they had it, and then they abandon their storage units, and all these parasites come in, and they, they, they fight over one another at auction, trying to get all the stuff that nobody even remembered they had. That's the ultimate expression of then, as Jesus says in the parable, then who will get what you have prepared for yourself. That is the sad irony of hoarding, is that you even forget what you have. Do you know that right now in state coffers all over the the U.S., there's $8 billion worth of unclaimed riches that people just forgot that they had? The state can't just get rid of it. They have to hold on to it. $8 billion of forgotten wealth. That's how rich we are. Oh, dude, I, I just totally forgot. I love what Jonathan Edwards had as his, his guiding creed for his relationship with money. Here's what he taught. He's a preacher, lived in the 1700s, and he lived by this little piece of wisdom. Earn as much as you can. Right on. Some of us are already there. Earn as much as you can. Then he said, save as much as you can, and then give as much as you can. That was his creed for his wealth. And he was a preacher, so you're like, oh, big deal. Preachers make, what, like 50 bucks a year? <laughs> this guy made the equivalent of about $2 million a year. He was a mega preacher. In the 1700s, everyone on both sides of the planet wanted to hear him preach. And so he made about $2 million a year, yet when he died, he was nearly penniless. The only assets he had were about 10 bucks and a set of heirloom silver spoons that were a family heirloom. That's all he left behind. And I think he is the wisest man ever. Because the guy who dies with eight billion in the bank is an idiot. That's eight billion you didn't use and no one used. What was it for? So you walk around going, I got eight billion useless dollars to my name. It's not going to help you, it's not going to help me, but oh man, it makes me feel like the big dog. I got eight billion useless dead dollars 
hidden away somewhere, and I'm going to die still having a... There's nothing to be proud of. And don't leave that curse for your children. They don't need $8 million of unearned money. Kingdom economics says that while you are able to do something with it, do something with it. Don't die with money in the bank. Throw your kids a cookie. I mean, leave them something. You know, just so you see, I love you. Here's a little money. But if you raise them right, they should be taking care of themselves and each other. They don't need you to make them wealthy for no reason at all. That is not a blessing. In every case, you listen. It's a curse to make your children wealthy with unearned, undeserved income. So while you have the chance, do something with it. And let me give you a a last little um, observation about what Jesus calls kingdom economics. He says, when you do something with it, here's what you do with the wealth that you have. Convert your wealth into blessings and joy. That's what you get for, uh, what happened there? That's what you get for copying and pasting. I, don't, I lost about four slides there, guys. I don't know what happened. Do we? It's weird. Okay, anyway. Um, in verse 33, here's what it says. He says, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. I'm not an economist, but I know this much. Every economy is based on trade. So in the early stages of human history, all economies centered around barter. I would trade one thing for another. Hey, I'll trade you 60 loaves of bread for a coffee table. Or maybe a service. I'll trade you five nights of babysitting for a deep tissue massage. What do you say? And people would try to figure out what's worth what. And everything in an economy is based on a fair trade, an exchange of one thing into another. So in fact, economics is a study of conversion. How do I convert one thing into something else? Well, that's what money is. Money is nothing more than a symbolic unit of conversion. This paper, and I, like I've been saying to you lately, I read a lot of post-apocalyptic fiction. And in, in a post-apocalyptic world, the only value this has is for this or to burn and keep you warm. In a post-apocalyptic world, you don't say, hey, I'll give you 100 bucks for that last piece of bread. Forget it, buddy. I'm going to eat this last piece of bread. Your money no longer has any value because it can't be traded for anything anymore. This is not something valuable insofar as it in itself is only a piece of cotton fiber or silk or something. It's some kind of fabric. It's not just paper. But that's all it's worth. Its real value is what you do with it, how you convert it into something else. That's the only value that money has. I think it's right for us to meet our basic needs with the money God has. He gives us enough that we can actually take care of ourselves and our families, and we shouldn't feel guilty about that. That is one of the great blessings that God gives his children, is to give us what we need to live. I also think it's wonderful that he gives us enough that many of us can go on vacation. We can go out to a nice restaurant, enjoy a good meal. We can buy some nice gifts for one another on holidays. I don't have any problem with that. I don't think God has any problem with that. 
But I think where the problem starts is when we have far more than we need or even legitimately want. And what we do with all the excess is just store it away. And when we do that, that is not a morally neutral decision. Not if you believe in God. See, if you write God out of the picture and there is no God, then there's nothing wrong. This is a no, this is a non-starter. It's a stupid story. And your point is, Jesus, what? Some guy made some money. He used it. Wow. What a story. See, if you write God out of the picture, this is the stupidest story ever told. But with God in the picture, it is not a morally neutral decision to hoard your wealth. Because what Ephesians 3.15 teaches us is that every person, every family on earth derives its name from God the Father. Meaning God loves all his children. He doesn't love some more than others. He loves all humanity. His concern is for everyone. Let me break break it down for you this way. Not all of us in this room are parents. But if you are a parent, imagine the heartache you'd feel if as your children grow older, one of them is extremely wealthy and the other is extremely poor. And the wealthy one goes, sucks to be you. (laughs) Here's for all the times you didn't let me use your hair curler or give me extra candy on Halloween. This is my revenge. And imagine the heartache you'd feel if one of your children saw his sibling in need and said, well, sucks to be you. It's not my problem. And he had more than he needed, and he hoarded what he had. I don't think I could look at that situation and go, well, what am I, what am I going to do? It's his money. It's, his, it's not his problem. He's not his brother's keeper. Only the problem is we are our brother's keeper. That's, in fact, exactly what it means to be a brother. See, the thing about family, the thing about family is that we help each other, not because we like each other, but because... That is what family does. It's a matter of obligation and duty. It's a way of identifying, I belong to you. I didn't just pick you, I belong to you. And the reason I belong to my brother is because we share the same father. That's the only reason he's my brother. I happen to like him. He's one of my best friends. But some of you have a brother or sister you really don't care much for. But the reason they're your brother or sister is because you share the same father. I don't know that God will ever be okay with us hoarding and storing away our, our surplus wealth as long as there are children he loves who have need. I've said a thousand times something like this, I am dying of hunger. <laughs> have you ever said that? It's never true. I am never dying of anything, okay? I... I'm never hungry enough that I'm dying. I'm just saying, first world problems, I haven't eaten like four hours. I feel a discomfort in my stomach. I'm dying. I am certainly not dying. But there are people who are dying. There are people for whom just a little bit of our surplus will make an eternal difference. And if we acknowledge God our Father... We are now bound to him in what we do with our surplus wealth. I had a a, a really great picture in the slide deck of, I I got to also visit my compassion kid. 
four-year-old boy named Franz. And, you know, some people, I've, I've had cynical friends look at those kinds of pictures and go, ah, there's your, there you go again, you Christians, just celebrating your good causes. And, you know, these kids are paraded around taking pictures with you. Thanks for the 38 bucks, and I don't you feel better about yourself? And if you're a cynic from the outside and you don't participate in converting your wealth into blessing, that's exactly what it must look like. There they go, congratulating themselves, patting themselves on the back, doing a nice little gesture and saying, look, here's our poor kid that we saved. But you go and meet that kid and you realize that it's not what it is at all. That when they call you Godfather, when they tell you that you're like a, a parent to them, they're not just saying it. You have literally made all the difference. I got to visit his home. I met his mother and his grandmother. Um, David, Kim, and I both went, and the cost of that visit was a horrible parasite that plagued us for two weeks. It was one of the worst sicknesses that I've endured. Um, he lives in it every day. And I got to see what his life would have looked like if my measly coffee money, my 38 bucks a month, had not gone. And this wasn't about me feeling good about myself. It was about me seeing In one of those rare instances, the true power of money is that in my pocket, 38 bucks would be about four frappuccinos or or five-shot iced coffees at Starbucks. But I saw joy, real joy, hope, in one little family's life. And it was real joy. It's not like, oh, thank you for giving us money. We're going to act like we're happy so you keep giving. Uh, It was real. And I don't know how to convince anyone Unless you're there, you do it, you experience it, you won't know. But one of the greatest gifts of life is that once my needs are met, I can convert the money I don't need into life change, joy, blessing for someone else. And when you taste that, it will never be enough. That's the economics of the kingdom. Is that the joy of doing something great with your money so far exceeds the joy of hanging on to it. That when you learn how to manage your surplus, God is inviting us not into this guilt-driven, giving-away festival, but into one of the greatest joys of discovering what money can be. I'll just wrap up this way. In politics and in police investigations, there's a common saying, follow the money. Because so much of human life revolves around the pursuit of money. And that's interesting because Jesus also says something like that. At the end of this passage, he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It is so important we get this right, this relationship we have with money. Because what Jesus is saying is, if you really want to know where your heart is, follow the money. It is one of the most clear and objective indicators of my spiritual state. Where your money goes shows you where your heart has gone. And where your money goes is where your heart also will follow. So when God asks you, when you ask yourself, where is my heart Don't answer with spiritual platitudes and religious language. Pause and go, well, where's my money going? That's a good starting place. 
Because where my money goes is where my heart is going. And my money shows me whether I'm seeking my kingdom or his kingdom. My money reveals to me what I love, what I value, and how long I think I'm going to be around on this place. So what is our money saying about us today? It's Thanksgiving. (laughs) My aim is not to guilt us into choking down chicken while we go, how much did this chicken cost? And, you know, it's not the goal. It's to say that on a day like this when we're normally going, having this festival of, gosh, it's awesome to be in our lives. We have so much. Just to pause and go, and then what? We have so much. Why? That's such a critical question to ask. We have so much. Why? And you don't have to look very far. There are people all over this congregation who have answered that question for the glory of God. There are people in this congregation who have been given so much and are converting that surplus into great joy all over the world. And when you experience what that feels like, you'll finally understand the real value of money. And your gratitude will overflow. I want to give you that invitation, and I want to ask us to just pause in a word of prayer, and then we'll go into lunch and just hang out together for a little while. Maybe it's telling that whenever money is the subject of preaching in America, congregational hearts become very heavy. There's a weird atmosphere in the room. And maybe that's revealing of something. It's important, as some of the wealthiest people on the planet, that we get this right, this relationship we have with money. Because if we don't get it right, it will completely control who we become and how we live. And the way we use money is not just an indicator of where our hearts are, it controls where our hearts go. It can lead people to wander away from their faith. So where is your relationship this morning with money? By the way, if your relationship with money is that you don't have very much right now, it's a cause of great stress. The part I skipped, we will preach on another day. It's about don't worry because God knows who you are and you're more valuable to him than the birds and the flowers. And he will take care of you. If that's where your heart is, that's what you need to hear, is that your God knows your name. He will take care of you. But if you're in that other place and you know you have more than you need, then what you do with the rest is an act of worship or the love of self. Let me just give us a minute. I'm going to invite the praise team to come up so they can lead us in one last song. But as they're making their way up, I'm just going to give us a couple minutes to reflect on that question. What does my relationship with money tell me about my heart and my relationship with God. And then after you reflect on it for a minute or so, see if God is saying anything to you, and then we'll sing. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.